Our passage this morning is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It's perhaps one of the most important passages on body life. How do, you relate, how do we relate to one another? It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Father, again, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for how it instructs us and how to relate to one another. And Lord, as we've been talking about spirituality, help us to remember that it's not just about ourselves; it's about how we serve one another in love. Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts so that as we partake at the table, we would come together unified. We would come together not only in communion with you, but with one another. So Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. I pray that we would examine ourselves, not only to see if we're in the faith, but if we're truly walking in the light. So guide our steps so that we might honor and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, you'll notice there's a bulletin insert you'd like to follow along. There's a story told, Gary Thomas tells a story of two American soldiers who became best friends during their preparations for combat during World War I. Though they had known each other only a short time, the camaraderie of battle and their shared dreams of post-war life quickly cemented their relationship. One day these two buddies crawled from the foxhole with the rest of the unit in an attack against the German forces. After a valiant fight, the order was given to retreat but only one of the two friends returned to the trench. The other had been hit by German gunfire and was lying about 50 yards out of reach. Against his commanding officer's orders, the other soldier crawled out of the ditch to go find his fallen comrade. Hugging the ground and dodging enemy bullets, he worked his way across the bloody corpse-littered ground until he finally located the friend he sought. Finding him semi-conscious, they were left with only a few seconds together before he died. When the man returned to the trench with the body of his soldier friend, the ranking officer flew into a rage. Was it worth it for you to risk your life? And this is what the guy said, absolutely, sir, because when I turned him over, he looked at me and said, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. That's loyalty. That's loyalty right there. If two soldiers should have that type of loyalty, how much more should the the family of God have that type of loyalty. By the way, one of the things that Satan will try to do to each Christian is to separate them from the body of Christ. If he can't separate you completely from the body of Christ, he will keep you moving. What I mean by that is this. You will get connected to a body for a certain amount of time, you'll get frustrated, and then you'll move to another body. And you won't get connected to anybody because you only stay there for just a few years and then you'll go to another body of believers. 
They say for pastors that it, it's not until about the fifth or sixth year that you really start connecting with the people and the people trust you. If that's true of a pastor, I would say it's almost equally true of a person. It's going to take a few years to get connected. And what Satan wants to do is disconnect. And if he can't do it completely, he'll just keep you moving. By the way, it's not, it's not to say that it's always wrong to leave a church. There are good reasons to leave certain churches. But be careful with moving. Be careful with moving. And also be careful with um, not connecting. You might be at a church, you may, be at, you may have been at this church for 20-some years, but not really connected, not really vulnerable, not in a small group where people really know you. You just come and go and everybody feels like everything's okay. There's got to be a connection point. This is what this passage is talking about. This is for people who are really connecting. Now again, since we're in Galatians chapter 6, again, the book of Galatians is primarily talking about how does a person get saved. And there were some people called the Judaizers who were promoting this idea that to get saved you had to follow the law of Moses, you had to get circumcised. So basically it was a works-based salvation. And Paul wrote the whole epistle, (coughs) primarily for chapter 3 and 4, that said, no, you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone of what he did justification by faith alone. And we've looked at that numerous times. But then he goes from from that thought of being saved and saying, well, but what does it look like? And in chapter 5, verse 16, he starts going down this path of walking in the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. Those are synonymous terms. I know Mike, the uh, chaplain last week, talked about being filled by the Spirit in in Ephesians chapter 5. Being filled. What does it look like? What does it produce? Well, again, Paul in this book contrasts the works of the flesh, verse 19, chapter 5, 19, works of the flesh, all the garbage that our flesh would produce, verses 22, the fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking in the, by the Spirit, what happens? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness. Um, I guess I didn't give him in that order. Gentleness, self-control, however you want to put that, but nine different parts of one fruit. Works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to be producing the fruit. But then he moves, and this is what's interesting, he moves into, but how does it play out into other people's lives? Because sometimes when we think of spirituality, we think of it totally, well, how am I growing? And his whole point in in verses 1 to 6 is, if you're truly saved, if you're truly walking by the Spirit of God, if you're truly being led by Him, you're going to have an impact on other people. That's the point. You're going to have an impact. If you find yourself being uh, like an island, and really, you know, Lord, I'm happy, I'm growing, I'm blessed. Um, you know, your other family members called Christians are out there, but, you know, I don't have time. Then you have to judge yourself and say, you know what? Maybe I'm not really walking by the Spirit like I think I am. Because not only are you going to be changing and growing if you're walking by the Spirit, but you're going to have impact on other people. Things are going to be happening in your life towards others. And that's what gets us right to verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken, if one of your brothers has fallen in battle, overtaken. <coughs> Actually, let me, let me say one other thing. These, I'm going to give you five, as it were, tasks, indicators. Let's put them in the indicators of your true spirituality as it pertains to others and how you work it out. Okay, this is kind of like how other... The first one is this, a believer that is spiritual, that truly is walking by God's Spirit, picks up the fallen. That's the first man you want to, I don't think I 
I think I left that blank, picks up the fallen. Again, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's interesting how practical Paul is at this point. Now think about going to see someone that has fallen. What might be the temptations that you would face? They're sinning. They don't want anything to do with you. They don't want anything to do with the Lord. They don't want anything to do with the church. Not only that, but they're running. What might be one of my responses? Wrong ones. Harsh, insensitive, even bothered. Let's face it, I've I've searched after this person two, three, four times. I'm frustrated. I just cut the line. Maybe he's not even saved. So what does he say? If you go, be what? Gentle. By the way, gentleness also is a fruit of the Spirit. You see that in verse 23. So what does that tell you? As I go, I need to be filled and dependent upon the Spirit of God. So he's saying don't be self-sufficient. Don't try to help your brother in need by being self-sufficient. He says gentle, be filled. You, you have to be connected with what God's doing. I'd say one other thing that would be a temptation of mine or yours, would be perhaps pride, arrogance. You know, somehow thinking that we're superior, I'm better than. That's why he says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, Paul's answering the objections that we might fall into, the temptations we might fall into. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Have you ever had this happen to you? You help someone else out, you're feeling really good. Really good. Lord, you use me. And within 24 hours, you yourself are either saying something or doing something that is totally against God. It's very easy to fall into pride. It's very easy to get self-sufficient. So Paul says, listen, you definitely have to help the fallen brother, but we have to do it with gentleness, under his control, not proud. So, Have you picked up the fallen? Number two, a believer that is spiritual helps bear the burdens of others. (coughs) They're burden bearers. Now again, this bear the burden, verse 2, is not a sin necessarily. It has application to verse 1 for sure, but these are burdens of all types. It may not even be a sin. And that it may be a sin in the sense of not depending on the Lord, and that's why they're there. In other words, this person might be weighed down. By the way, the, way, the word burden means crushing burden, something huge. Remember we had this rock a couple weeks ago, and I said, this is a crushing burden. I couldn't lift that rock by myself without really hurting myself. That burden can be things such as poverty. Maybe it's a failure. They have failed, and it's such a crushing blow to them that they have failed and maybe a relationship or whatever. It might be worry that just, just seems to zap the strength right out of them or loneliness or illness, illness many times, or a relationship that has been destroyed, whether it's through with a spouse or with a kid, but it's just a crushing weight. By the way, some of those aren't sinful, but we do experience crushing weight. And what does it say? Well, Paul's point is this. If you're really filled with the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, you're going to be a burden bearer. 
If you, if you don't respond and be a burden bearer, you've got to start wondering, is it maybe I'm just selfishly religious? No, we're looking. In fact, I believe a spiritual Christian is going to be looking. Antennas up. It's a burden. It's a heavy burden. Thankfully, Jesus Christ bore our greatest burden. Our greatest burden, our greatest need was that we are sinners before a holy God and condemned for our sin. He bore that on the cross. That's something we can't bear for each other. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And if we receive him, I love John 1.12, as many as received him, that's Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, to those who trust in what he has done. See, there's a weight in each one of our lives that none of us can bear for the other. And that is forgiveness. We need to be forgiven for our sins. Jesus Christ bore that. But then he brings us into his family, children of God, what I just read. But now as children, we're supposed to bear one another's burdens, the things that happen to us. And we have to be honest, and perhaps at this point very honest, and say, are we? Or do we just like our life? You know, I've just got enough stress on my own. So again, we have this body life concept. And we had this rock a few weeks ago. And remember, we, I had four other guys help me. It illustrated the fire that we went through about seven years ago. Ten, no, seven, eight years ago. But remember, when, when I had that person come up, the, those people come up. Not every, by the way, not, all of you didn't come up and help me with that burden. Just four. It wasn't just the elders. It was others. And, you, and they helped me move that. And that's example of what we do in the church. Someone has a major burden. doesn't mean everybody runs to them, and that would be suffocating. But what we do is a few might run and say, you know, I understand where you're at. I've even gone through this before, and I'm going to help you pick it up. It was only for a short time. Get me up so that I could start functioning on my own. We have to think of it in those terms. By the way, if you, don't get it, if you don't get that straight, you'll get frustrated with our church because may, maybe you'll say this, well, you know, I met a need, but I didn't see everyone else meeting the need. Or I had a need and not everyone else came running to me, but it seemed like everyone goes running to so-and-so. You see how you can kind of compare and all of a sudden get frustrated, and yet the church operated exactly like it was supposed to. A few that needed, that was sent by God, met the need, and everyone else perhaps watched and prayed and encouraged in other ways, but that's how you do it. That's body life. If I smack my hand with a hammer, I don't go like this. Oh, i got to try to help my hand. It's natural for my other hand. Woo! In my eye. Whew. Right? Just a few of my members are meeting that need. So again, a believer that is spiritual is that is spiritual will help bear the burden. I would say this, make sure you get connected. It's easy not to be connected. I like what CJ Mahaney says, and he has he used to be in a very big church. I think he might still be there, but um, another man is preaching there. But this big church of a couple thousand people, and he said this. He said, the longer that you're going to be involved here, the smaller our church should become. I like that. It doesn't matter how big the church is. The longer you're there because you're making relational connections, the smaller it should become. You should start knowing people. You may not know everyone. That's fine. That's fine. Actually, that's totally fine. You don't have to know everyone. But you should. But the church should become smaller because you're putting time and energy into relationship building. By the way, it does take time and energy. 
If you just come and say, man, I thought it was a really close church. It seems so friendly, but I just haven't got connected in the last three years. I guess they're not that friendly. Probably, who's got the problem? So again, we want to be connected. So that, as Corinthians says, that the members should have the same care for one another. Same care for one another. Small groups are huge. You know, we have home groups and, and ladies groups and and um, men's groups. And, and we're actually, during this summer, taking a respite and looking at them. And we're trying to evaluate as elders, leaders, and saying, how can we make those more vital in your own life? You need to get connected, guys. If it's just Sunday morning, it doesn't cut it because you'll go through things and nobody will know. And what will be the comment? Nobody cares. But nobody knew. You have to get connected. That takes energy, not just on our part, but on yours. Third thing, verse 3. A believer that is spiritual, walking with the Spirit, sees himself, catch this, correctly. Correctly. He sees himself correctly. I want you to notice the contrast here. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing. The idea of thinks is contracted, contracted with, uh, contrasted with is. See, he thinks this, but this is what he is. He thinks himself to be something, but the contrast is nothing. He thinks himself to be something, but he really is nothing. He just deceives himself. When you put those two together, now think about it. Let's think about the flow here. We've just talked about someone who is being helped because they are overtaken in a sin. We also have talked about people who are burden bearers because this person is under a crushing weight. You could start getting, again, a very proud attitude. I've never had to deal with those things. Oh, I'll help you, poor slob. But, you know, I'm not going to have to deal with it. See, to get to that to get to that conclusion that you're something, you had to have compared. And I think verse 3 is talking about that, not comparing. It's easy to compare. It's easy to compare what we make, who we marry, who we're married to, our position in life, power, things, whatever. We it's very easy to compare. And when you're helping someone, it's very easy to compare as well. Corinthians 10.12 says this, 1 Corinthians 10.12, For we dare, we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, those who do compare, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You start comparing and saying, well, how could they get into that mess anyways? Why are they always so depressed? What's their problem? Why do they keep getting into debt? Why do you keep having relational problems? Well, there might be issues. But you can't draw the conclusion. Do not draw the conclusion like you're so much, so much better. But by the grace of God, there go I. Now you think about comparing. You think about comparing and what it does... And all the sins that can come from that. I would say this, comparing at times produces anger. It produces bitterness. It produces envy. It produces jealousy. 
Many times it's because of comparing that people gossip. That they're hurt. They're hurt because they don't have what someone else. Resentment, frustration, hate even, discontent for sure. Find yourself discontented, probably you're one who falls in this. This is the thing about this sin, and it is a sin, because we're just told not to. It's so easy. You don't even think about it. A lot of times people will come into your mind, things will be thought through, and, and you didn't even realize you were doing it. It was just kind of like there. You know how you, I think a lot of guys many times put themselves in neutral. Like, what are you thinking about? Nothing. Really? Sometimes you are. You just don't really... But anyways, I think here at least this is comparing. And this comparing, though, produced this, conceit. Okay, comparing produces a lot of things, but in this passage it's conceit. Thinks himself to be something. Think of ourselves as something more important. But now think about this. We will treat others according to how we see ourselves. If we see ourselves as exalted, there's a tendency to treat others with less than true concern. Again, those who compare themselves with others get an exalted view of themselves and generally, because they're self-centered, don't serve. Well, you know, because, you know what? I, and this is why. I mean, I, again, I've been trying to incorporate this in my own life. Why? Why would I think? Because at times, I guess I felt like that. Well, because I don't see myself ever getting cancer like that person. Well, if I don't ever see myself getting cancer like that person, then, well, I might have concern for them, but maybe not like if I knew that I was going to get in two years. I don't see myself having a relational problem with my wife like I have with other people. So if I don't see that and if I'm not real careful, what you, what's their problem? Why can't they just deal with it? Some people are very lonely. I haven't been there. See, do you know what I'm saying? If you start comparing and saying, well, maybe, maybe God just won't... You know, have you ever had this thought, you just can't imagine yourself dying of cancer? You, you can't imagine yourself really being that depressed? You really can't imagine yourself being that hurt? Well, then you won't have much concern, maybe, for that other person. One of the chief reasons many Christians do not bother to help fellow Christians is that they feel superior to that sinner and wrongly consider themselves to be spiritually something when they're really, again, nothing. That's why Paul encourages us in Philippians 2, don't do anything with selfish ambition or empty conceit. What? But in lowliness of mind, let... Each, each, not just pastors and elders, each esteem others better than himself. Why does Paul say that? Because he knows there's a tendency to be, feel superior. And then he goes on and talking about the mind of Christ and how Christ came to be a servant. To be a servant. So again, comparing produces conceit. Comparing. It, it makes us more... Um, um, callous because you know what needy people have a way of demanding our time if you're need, if you're working with a needy person they have a, a way to demanding your time changing your plans you even have to sometimes rearrange your schedule you ever been around a needy person but i don't mean a needy consistent i'm saying someone that's really hurting at that moment you might have to give up some of your time and plan things to help that person and again, that just frustrates, hey, you know, I'll serve you, but I've got to have it in my time frame. It's funny how the Lord sends us people that makes it so that you can't have it in your time frame. You have to make a choice. You're going to walk with God and serve them, or you're off the, you're actually out of, the, out of walking with God at that moment because you've, you have selfishly said, no, you know, I'm just too busy. 
So comparing produces not only conceit, but look at this. He deceives himself. If, if you think you're something when you're nothing. That word deceive means to lead one's mind astray. And it's in the present tense, which is, means it continually happens. I mean, if I really start believing I'm something, I'm something. I'm a pastor of a church. I've got a really good marriage. I've got great kids and good friends. I don't know what's the problem with all you guys, but I'm blessed. No, wait a second. But because of the grace of God in my life, what would happen if, if, if God had not saved you? Or if God had not, is not empowering you right now, where would you be? That's a good thought. That's a good thought to have. Because really, when he says, you are nothing, that is not an exaggeration. That is a truth. You are nothing without Christ. Calvin said it this way, John Calvin, 500 years ago, we have nothing of our own to boast about, but are destitute of every good thing. That, that is true. But it's hard for us to really believe that. You know, we're in America, prosperity, boy, we have so much. Have you ever even had this thought that maybe we're better than the guy in Africa who lives on $2 a day? You're not. God may even show us that. See, we're nothing. I'm not saying that you're like a worm. I don't like that one song that says, you know, even a worm. We're not worm. We're children of God. But without Christ in our life, we're nothing. Everything we have, even the breath you take is given by God, right? A stewardess once told the heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali to prepare for takeoff. Superman don't need no seatbelt, he said. She replied, Superman don't need no plane. (laughs) Yeah, you get too haughty and you'll hit the earth. Jesus said this, and this is in in the agricultural sense, I am the vine. You're the branch. I'm the source of life. I'm, I'm your source of sustenance. I'm your source. You disconnect from me. Well, what does he say? He who abides in me, I in him, bears much fruit. What? For without me, same word, you can do nothing. No, you're nothing. Unless you're connected with me, you're nothing. Therefore, if something good is happening in your life, know that it's either through common grace or specific grace that you're there. Everything that you have. It's either through, well, I mean, the rain uh, is given to the just and the unjust, common grace, but also specifically to his. But if you have, whatever you have, we need to start saying, thank you, Lord. In fact, I think a a great thing to do as an exercise is, is take out a sheet of paper and find 50 things that God has blessed you with. And start and make sure you're, do it small. I mean, you know, do specific things. Not just my wife. Name 20 things about your spouse. That can actually revitalize your marriage. Just that. And then you take your children, who sometimes frustrate you, but but by the grace of God. That's why in Corinthians 4, Paul says, For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Now, everything you have. I, I know Mike showed you... Uh, Three glasses of milk, I think, and he put chocolate in two and shook off. Or I guess the one represented the natural man, no spirit. Chocolate represents spirit. The, the second one represented um, probably he did the carnal man, if it's in the sequence. 
there but not really permeating the milk. And then the third one shook it up, and that, per, that represents the Christian who is permeated, controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what he means by nothing. Without me being permeating your life, the Spirit of God... I don't know if he used gloves, but I, I like the, also the illustration of a glove. I like these gloves. These are, these are man's gloves. None of those wimpy things that, like, you know, self-destruct in a, in a day's work. These gloves have done a lot of work. A lot of cords have been stacked with these, cutting trees down, even sharpening the blade of the chainsaw, because I like to hold the one so it doesn't rip my skin. But I doubted if any of you would say this, boy, those are really good gloves. Let's really boast in those gloves. See, we're just the glove. It's the Spirit of God that makes the glove work. And if anything good in your life that's visual, it's because the Spirit of God is working. Okay? We're just the glove. If we're going to boast, we need to make sure we're boasting in the Lord, not in ourselves. And that's what he says in verse 4. Look at this. See, he just went through comparing, thinking, but what you really are. But now look at, so the, verse 4 says, but this is like, as it were, the antidote. This is, how, this is how humility is created in your own life. But each one, but let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. At first, it almost sounds like out of place. What is this? What do you sound examine yourself? He's saying self-examination. He's saying, listen, don't compare yourself with someone else because most likely you'll, you'll come to the top of the pile because you'll pick somebody that is the down and outer. Compare yourself with what you should be before God. Then you'll have rejoicing. See, rejoicing in himself alone and not in another Don't compare yourself with others. Compare yourself to God's divine standard of what He has for you. In fact, in Scripture, there's a few places that talks about self-examination. Well, one we looked at a few weeks ago where it says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's if you go to someone. But the other one is actually very much for today because we're doing communion, and that is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. It says, let a man examine himself. Same word, same word here. Examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread, drink of the cup in a worthy manner. See, if I put myself up against God's standard of what he expects of me, that's not going to make me feel like I'm something when I'm nothing. Let me give you a... A caution, though. We are not talking about being super analytical here. We're not talking about being overbearing and overly introspective. Some of you are perfectionists. And when I tell you self-examination, immediately, but how could I ever say I'm walking with God? There's always got to be something in my life that's not right. And you know what? Actually, that's true. The Puritans used to say it this way, even your best deed... Is, is somehow shaded by the other side. Okay? But, but I'll give you the hope. What, what God is saying, and he says it many times, it says, just present yourself to God. Walk with him. Basically this, Lord, I know the things I've done wrong, and I've either confessed them or confessing them right now. But as I come to the table, there might even be other things, and there will be, right? That's the growth process. And Lord, I'm just laying at your, your feet. You show me, and I will listen, right? 
It doesn't have to be this introspective thing like you're looking for the micron of, of sin in your life. There's a lot more than that. There's a truckload. But it, shouldn't be con- it should be confessed sin. It should be issues that you are dealing with, Lord, as you show me, I will deal with it. See, we should be able to come before the table with a clear conscience, knowing, Lord, whatever you've shown me, I will listen. I'm a good listener. I struggle. I have trials. And even after I take communion, as I'm walking out, there might be an ugly thought or an ugly action that comes from my, me. But Lord, at that moment, I want to walk with you. I'll confess it. That's why the Puritans always said that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's just you keep repenting. There's things that you, you know, learn and you, okay. And that shouldn't be negative. That's very positive. Because you know what? We have a father who went and rescued you. Think about that. When you hated him. And now I'm in the family. He just wants to bless me and he wants to be honored in the process, right? So self-examination, that's the, that's the antidote to this comparing conceitful thing. Because look at, look at what he says. Look at the second part of verse 4. I, fi- I find this so fascinating. And then he will have rejoicing, or the word is boasting in himself alone and not enough. He's going to rejoice. See, some people can never get to that point of actually examining their own work and then rejoicing. Because they examine their own work, and this is what they'll say. Oh, boy, I tried to work, walk with God. In fact, you can, I, I do this sometimes. People say, well, how was your week? Well, it might have been a very, very good week, but, oh, I remember back on Wednesday, I think it was 6 o'clock at night, I thought that wrong thought. And so when they asked me, well, it was a pretty good week. Wait a second here. Did God convict you? Did you even do the sin? No, but it, I felt the weight of it. Well, you get, how can you rejoice in what God is doing in your life? I think sometimes I need to lighten up. See, we need to boast in what God has done in and through us. That's where our boasting is. What is God doing in your life? Like that's one reason to keep a journal, because as you keep a journal, you start seeing how, you prog- how you're progressing. Paul said in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. If you're a believer, that power is working through you. To him, to him, that's God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. To him be the glory. If you, if you walk in these steps and you analyze, evaluate, it keeps you humble, but it also keeps you glorifying him and boasting in him. Lord, yes, I'm not perfect, but then again, that's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 3. We haven't yet attained, but God is working. God is working. And you know what? If we don't rejoice in using that word, boast in what he's doing, I mean, that's like a person painting a picture, and then we kind of come and say, well, that's not very good. Sometimes I think we, God, the way we approach ourselves, we should be, you know, Lord, thank you. I see how you're painting. I see how you're moving. I see how you're changing in my life. And there should be a rejoicing in our life. Boast in the Lord. I see I'm out of time. Let me give you two more quick ones. A believer that is spiritual takes personal responsibility for themselves. See, if you connect verse 2 with 5, the burden, okay, the weight changes. In verse 5, 
where it says, for each one shall bear his own load. That word load, again, as I told you, is like backpack. It's got weight, but it's doable. If I put it on, I'd sweat, but you know, if I, I could carry it. See, what is he talking about here? He's saying, listen, as you're growing now, maybe you're even the one that's overtaken, but now you're being able to carry it on your own. You've you got to learn to carry your own load. That load would be your, your, your cross. Part of it is your ministry, what God has placed in your life as far as a ministry giftedness. But your load is also the, the things that happen in your life, to walk in a manner worthy of Him. Being, a, see, being able to see the trials and the temptations that you endure, that you're victorious over, but that you're not always depending on other people to help you, that you actually become more independent dependent. Let me say it that way. Independent Saying, Lord, I can bear this, but I'm dependent on you. Independent, dependent. A person who wants to carry their own load will live responsibly within the body of Christ. Again, they, these are lessons they've learned. They're independent, dependent on Christ. There's times, by the way, that I'll need you to help me bear a load. I'm not saying it never was going to happen, but that's not going to be the norm. If I find that one of my children have cancer, they're going to die within a year, I hope some of you show up at my doorstep and say, John, I'm here for you. I'm, I'm here for you. Or some other tragedy. Never, never are we presenting the picture of independence like we don't need each other. No, obviously that's the exact opposite. This person has learned not to wallow in their sins and trials and temptations. These are the things. This is how to be victorious, not to wallow. When God chastens, when God chastises, you listen. This person has learned how to work through their trials for God's glory. They've learned how to change and grow for God's glory and even their own happiness, their blessedness, as it were. In other words, the principles of spiritual growth. They've learned to serve rather than just be served, although they know how to receive some people that even look spiritual don't know how to receive service from the body of Christ. Oh, no, it's fine. Is everything okay? No, it's going. Can I help you in any way? No. Well, wait a second. Part of, part of true spirituality is humility that says, you know, I need you. See, this person has learned how to use their giftedness and abilities. In other words, they're stretching their spiritual muscles. You, you, do, you put those concepts. I've, I've learned how to deal with trials. I've learned how to walk with the Spirit. I know that I need to be changing and growing. That doesn't frustrate me. That encourages me. They're then able to bear their own load, their own backpack. By the way, a backpack can get pretty heavy. How heavy is the backpack of a soldier? Can you tell me? How many pounds do they carry? I want to say 60 or 70 pounds, isn't it? Yeah, think about that on a 10, 12-mile... 20 mile, 50 mile hike in the desert sun. The point is it can be really hard. I'm not saying, but it's not crushing. See, a backpack can be very heavy, but it doesn't have to be crushing. And then finally, we get to verse 6. The final tasked indicator of true spirituality as a believer that will reciprocate in serving. Now, this is, in, this is the most interesting in the verses. It says, Let him who is taught the word. Now, if you're taught the word, that puts you back in verse 1 and 2, where you're receiving what you need. 
share, so that's the receiver, shares in all good things with him who teaches. It's interesting, most of the commentary said, well, that's you giving money to your pastor. Now, that does me good, but that's not what the text says, I don't think. By the way, you can back that up in other places where it says, you know, don't muzzle the oxen. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, but the point here is I think this is what he's getting at. I really do. And I thought long and hard because I'm disagreeing with most people. But I think he's saying this, the one who has been taught, in other words, the one who's been rescued from the burdens, they need to share, and have had the word shared to them, have also the responsibility to pick up others and bear their burdens and keep himself humble and walking in a responsible way in the church. In other words, as you have received, now you are, you are becoming a fixed person, and now you're able to minister and serve the body of Christ. Because what might be the tendency? You know, this person has been brought from the pit, let's say, even as a Christian, from sinning. And now, what happens? You know what? We've helped you. You just need to stay there. And, no, Paul says, no, no, no. They need to become a vital part of the body of Christ. None of the second-class citizenship, as it were. So, again, they need to know that they have to also serve it's the, called the priesthood of the believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's, Paul says this, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, let's see here, where is it? Verse 21, I think it says, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And we cannot say to the person that has fallen and overtaken or has had a crushing burden for many years even, or maybe a year, and we've helped them and they've said things and even done things that were wrong just because of sin or whatever, and yet we help them up and we can't ever say, but you really don't have much to give to the body. Paul says, as they have been shared to now, let them share. Let them give. Let them become a vital part of the body of Christ. I remember... uh, a guy came one time. He was a missionary years and years and years ago, and he went to Africa. And, and when he was in Africa, he, he had, I think, a, a um, got hurt somehow. Anyways, he got addicted to prescription drugs. And from prescription drugs, he became addicted to uh, alcohol. He had a real messed up life. This is a missionary. This is someone who was serving the Lord at one time. Well, anyways, it turns out that he went to a church, not this one, but another one. He wanted to repent. And I think he really did repent at that moment. But they told him this, you know what? You can repent, because that's between you and God, but as far as us, and it was, I think it was even during communion, you're going to have to sit in the back chair, the back pew. Not only that, but you cannot take communion. Now, he had repented. It's called closed communion. He had to sit there, And I think he told me for a number of years. I don't know if he ever got, i.e., restored to, like, participating in the body. But can you imagine the discouragement he must have had? I can't seem to get part of the body of Christ again. He only came for for a little bit at our church, and then he actually moved out of the area. But again, Paul says, you know what? Once you bring the person up, get get them on the right track, and then... Let's see them become a vital person to minister to the other people in the body as well. 